the loneliest place in North America. I've been thinking about death a lot lately, ever since I was hired as a graveyard shift security guard at Six Flags. A lot of time and not a lot to do but think, especially nights where I was on parking lot duty. The lot was so massive that they erected a watchtower in the center. There wasn't much to do inside the park after hours and there was even less to do in the empty parking lot but the park's insurance mandated that someone be posted there at all hours, so the security department rotated us through, usually about one shift a week. Most shifts on the island, as it was called, passed without so much as a radio call. It was technically against company policy for employees to read a book or do anything like that on the clock, but there's a milk crate on the floor under the desk filled with old magazines. Nobody's added to it since a 2003 Sports Illustrated with Tim Duncan on the cover. It and most of the other magazines in the milk crate were addressed to someone named Ron Fenthauser. There was a lighthouse calendar on the wall still stuck on September 2004. The standard rock lighthouse in the middle of Lake Superior was featured. It looked small and impossibly insignificant sitting out in the middle of all that water, surrounded by a small section of reef, faintly visible just beneath the surface. The caption in cursive script read, the loneliest place in North America. I often wondered if someone had intentionally left it on that month. Even if no one had, I liked to imagine that everyone to do a shift out here since then had made a conscious choice not to take it down. The loneliest place in North America, indeed. Whenever I knew Rose was working at the front gate, I'd try to catch her attention with my flashlight. Sometimes she'd see me flashing signals at her, and she'd send back a blink before calling me on the radio. Two blinks meant that someone was in the office with her, and she couldn't talk. Someone besides Garrett, at least. Someone who would care if she was misusing company time or radios. Although sometimes I suspected that the second person in the office might in fact be Garrett, and the reason that she couldn't talk was because they were busy doing something that would probably get them in far more trouble than just flipping through her phone or goofing off on the radio. As much as it made my stomach turn, I couldn't stop thinking about it and replaying the images over in my mind in the darkness of the watchtower. Sometimes I'd walk into the office a few hours later and try to imagine where it might have happened. I don't know why I torture myself like this. My brother died a few months ago, according to the coroner's estimate. They found his body in a pair of garbage bags on the side of the road two weeks ago. Nobody's been arrested. I've been thinking about death a lot lately, especially on those 3 a.m. rounds when I'm by myself and my mind is so tired that it feels like it's circling a drain and the sunrise seems far, far away. Most nights they stop doing regular radio checks after 2 or 3 unless something crazy has happened to put everyone on their toes, and I start to feel like I'm floating in some sort of time out of time liminal space. Three hours go by and only five minutes pass on the clock. It's weird how we watch action movies and horror movies and read history books where dozens of people perish and we intrinsically feel a sense of superiority to everyone who has ever died, even though everyone's died who's ever lived, even some really otherwise remarkable people. Napoleon may have conquered half of Europe, but he's dead now, never even ate a McRib, and I'm alive. Maybe we think we'll be the first one to buck the trend. I found an unused outdoor amphitheater on one of my first rounds. It's not marked on any of the maps, and the paths in are all blocked off and so overgrown that they're beginning to disappear. Tall, dense growths of trees surround the pit on all sides, and scores of dead leaves blanket the rusting old bleachers. The roof is only a few feet above ground level, and there are five flights of stairs down to the stage. 
it's hard to tell in the dark, but the place looks like it probably held a couple hundred people in its time. I've never been a lover of traditional breakfast foods, doubly so after those late shifts when my biological clock is ticking towards dinner, even at four in the morning. This has led to my becoming friends with Mr. Chen, who owns City Tokyo, a Japanese restaurant on my walk home. City Tokyo is an upscale sushi joint, and the only restaurant in town open 24 hours a day, due to Mr. Chen's insomnia. He tells me that before I started coming in, he could count on one hand the number of customers he'd seen between 2 in the morning and 9. Every morning I'd find him at the bar, smoking and watching the tiny little TV he'd mounted to the wall. First time I visited, I felt bad rousing him into the kitchen. When I walked in, Mr. Chen would always ask me if my girlfriend was coming. I'd tell him that she wasn't, and he'd nod and head into the kitchen. I'd only come with Rose one time over a year ago. She couldn't get past her revulsion at the idea of eating sushi when the sun was getting ready to rise, so Mr. Chen had gone off menu and made her pancakes. I felt bad when she only ate half of one, but he told me not to worry about it. I'd never indicated to Mr. Chen that she was my girlfriend, although I didn't correct him either. A garbage man found my brother when they drove past the black garbage bags in a weedy roadside ditch between two houses. No trash cans in the vicinity, not even three miles from our house. I think I preferred the security job, because at least there I was mostly alone, and everyone at Starbucks was still on eggshells around me, except for Garrett. In fact, he never even mentioned my brother to me. Listening to him flirt with women over the drive through headset, it was like my brother never died. Once he'd unknowingly said some suggestive shit to one of Rose's best friends as she was trying to order a macchiato. When she confronted him about it at the window, he told her that the manager liked for him to do it because it increased sales. The next day Rose called me to verify that this was true, and I told her that it was. It didn't seem like something that our manager would approve of, but in fairness to Garrett, she had never laid out any specific policy on drive through flirtation, pro or anti. I was on a round with Rose, and it was about 2.30, and we were coming up on that last turn before you get back to the main office, when she asked me if I'd ever seen the dolphin tank. I had no idea what she was talking about until I realized that she was taking me to the amphitheater. Oh, I've seen this, I said. I didn't know it was a big-ass fish tank. When did they have dolphins here? In the 80s, I think. I think it maybe ended sometime in the early 90s. I'm not really sure. Oh, wow. I think I might have actually seen one of the shows here when I was a little kid. Whenever I remembered it, I always just assumed it had been at SeaWorld or something. Yeah, it was really popular for a while, but they've pretty much removed any memory of it from public record. Nobody talks about it, and it's not on any maps or any official histories of the park. We descended down the stairs into the pit, each of us scanning the bleachers with bobbing flashlight beams as we went. When we reached the base of the stage, Rose tapped on the wall with the butt of her flashlight. The hollow sound of metal on heavy glass echoed around the theater. The glass was so dusty and opaque that from the top of the stairs, it had looked just like more concrete. Rose pulled aside some branches from an overgrown bush on the far edge of the stage, revealing a short iron ladder. I followed her up. The stage platform was much narrower than I'd been expecting. Rose told me to be careful, and my eyes followed the beam of her flashlight to the bottom of the tank behind me. My stomach churned. The floor must have been a hundred feet down, and I was unwittingly standing only a few feet from the precipice. The tank was empty, save for a few muddy puddles, a few dozen empty cans, and a smattering of weeds. Man, if you fell, you'd be done, I said. It'd be like walking off the roof of a five-story building, said Rose. 
Have you ever seen what a person's body looks like after they jump off a really tall building? I shook my head. Shit, I'm so sorry. I totally forgot, she said. No, no, it's fine. It's not like they let me see him anyways. They just told me he was in garbage bags. They cremated him before I could see him. Well, maybe that's for the best anyways, she said. That's what they seemed to think. We stood next to each other without saying anything for a while after that, staring awestruck down into the tank. Do you think anyone ever has fallen in? I asked her. She shrugged. I know there used to be a ladder. She waved her light across a section of the near wall a few feet down where ladder spaced holes in the concrete led down into the darkness. Why would they take it out? I asked. Don't know. Liability? Stop people like us from messing around? Seems stupid, though. What if you accidentally drop something? She crossed the stage away from the tank towards where a small bush was growing out of a destroyed section of concrete and returned with a coil-up heap of rope. She tossed it to the floor, allowing it to spread. A ladder. She asked if I wanted to check out the tank as she bent over and tied the ladder to a low metal knob attached near the edge of the pool. I told her that I wasn't sure that I did. But once she started down, I knew that I would be following her. I tested every rung on the way down. I had to fight back nausea to prevent myself from becoming too dizzy to climb. A few times I had to pause for just a moment when it took all my strength just to hold on, not to let the muscles of my fingers go slack with fear. I arrived on the floor of the tank well after Rose did. The ladder swung jerkily back and forth with my every movement once her weight was no longer below me to anchor it. It was quiet on the bottom. No sound of the outside world made it as far down as we were. Man, it would really suck if the ladder fell right now. Rose's voice echoed when she spoke. I waited to hear the sound of the rope sliding down the concrete wall, turned half expecting to see the ladder rapidly piling up on the floor, but it was still in place, still swaying from when I jumped off the bottom rung. I asked Rose if she came down here often. She said she'd only been a couple of times before. Does everyone know about this place except me? I asked. Only a few people. It's neat, but usually not worth the trouble after you've seen it once, you know. We walked around exploring the bottom of the tank for a while. I almost stepped on a small pile of bones, bleached white over years of exposure to the elements. It looked like maybe a stray cat had fallen in at some point. When I turned around, Rose was already most of the way up the ladder. I shouted to her and began to run in the direction of the ladder, stumbling through piles of garbage and debris, but she made no response. She reached the top of the ladder and, before I could reach the bottom rung, began pulling it up behind her. I screamed up at her, trying to steady my voice and mask the paralyzing chill that was shooting through my veins. She laughed. Sorry about that. I forgot you were down there. She finished pulling up the last length of the ladder over the ledge and tossed it aside. Don't worry. I'm scheduled for tomorrow. I'll come back for you. I yelled that this wasn't funny, but she was already gone. I began searching the walls of the tank, looking for another way out that I'd missed earlier, but there was none. I scanned the floor for some kind of escape hatch or tunnel or drainage pipe big enough to climb through, anything, but there was nothing. Finally, I sat down against the wall across from where the ladder had been and tried to calm my breathing. It did no good to panic. I thought about screaming, but from down here at this time of night, there would be no one close enough to hear me. Except, maybe for Rose. Maybe she hadn't actually even left the theater. Maybe she was sitting in the bleachers, waiting to see what I would do. Deciding that I didn't want to give her the satisfaction of hearing me beg, I made up my mind to patiently wait her out. 
Perhaps when she didn't get the reaction she was looking for, she'd give up and drop the ladder back down. The thought crossed my mind that maybe she really did want to kill me. How well did I really know her? Maybe she and Garrett had devised this plan and were together laughing about it at this very moment. If that was the case, no amount of screaming or begging would bring the ladder back. There was nothing left for me to do, at least until the morning came. I checked my phone and found that I had no cell signal, trapped in what was essentially a concrete bunker. I was completely at her mercy. I looked up and saw the silhouette of someone standing at the edge of the tank, their features dark and unreadable against the mauve glow of the night sky. They were watching me. Rose? I called out. But it wasn't her. I knew right away that it wasn't her. It looked like a man, though it was hard to tell in the dark from this distance. The figure watched me for another minute and then backed away from the ledge and disappeared from sight. About an hour later, Rose called to me from above. Did I forget to drop the ladder for you? I'm sorry, you should have said something. The ladder flitted out over the precipice, its limp form splayed catawampus and frozen against the dim starlight for a brief moment, like a crime scene chalk outline, before it came tumbling down towards the center of the tank, swinging back until the bottom rung clacked dully against the concrete wall opposite where I was sitting. I scrambled for it and was nearly halfway up before I considered that, if Rose wanted to, she could untie the ladder from its anchor and I would be dead. I stopped climbing and looked up, but she was nowhere to be seen. I had little choice but to keep climbing. I found her sitting in the first row of bleachers, looking at her phone and waiting for me to emerge from the pit she left me in. I thought a lot while I was down there about what I would say to her if and when she returned for me, but as the sounds and smells of the world above ground returned, they all seemed silly and needlessly combative. In my eagerness to climb the ladder, I forgot all about the figure I'd seen watching me while Rose was gone. Walking through the park when it was closed was one of the best parts of the job. The rides gone dark and silent, concession windows shuttered, the rarefied night air all quickening the pulse. Even several months in, it still felt like I was doing something forbidden, like the park was asleep and if my footsteps grew too loud I would awaken it, or whatever it was that was lurking in the jagged overlapping shadows. They usually let the music and announcements keep running for a few hours after close while we do our initial sweeps, and during these I like to imagine that the apocalypse has come, laying the outside world low, and that I'm one of the few dozen people left, a ghost haunting the midway. I wonder what actors are thinking when they have to act out their character dying. Do they think about their own death, and if it might look anything like what they're portraying for the camera? I didn't cry at my brother's funeral. Everyone I know was there, plus a lot of people that I didn't, even up to the mayor, whose office my brother had worked at after he graduated college. He was the same age as, and good friends with, her son. Most of the people there were crying. I was so scared of losing control and not being able to reel it in, of melting into a sobbing mess with snot running down my face, that instead I cinched myself up so tight as to not feel much of anything, and spent most of the time concentrating intently on not crying. I felt that if I loosened the faucet even a little bit, something terrible might come rushing out before I could close the tap back up. My dad didn't like that I hadn't cried or even seemed all that sad, in his estimation, and he let me know about it. But I never really felt obligated to pay much mind to what my dad did or didn't like. He never liked me. When I was six months old, he ran over my baby carrier in the driveway. If my mom hadn't taken me out a few minutes earlier, he'd have killed me. I think about that a lot. What would it have sounded like? I was glad that Mr. Chen didn't see me walk past his restaurant that morning. 
I had no appetite, but I would have felt obliged to go inside and order something if he'd seen me. I was worried that Garrett would bring up the dolphin tank incident at work the next day, but he never mentioned it. Maybe Rose never told him about it. Did they tell each other everything about their day? They didn't give the impression that they did. The manager yelled at Garrett for making himself a drink, something he often did when she wasn't around. He called it the ass kicker. It was his signature drink of sorts. A large cup with a third syrup, a third espresso, and a third chocolate sauce. A lot of whipped cream on the top. The manager was mad because it would have cost $15 if a customer were to order that and he was wasting it. He told her that his brain could think faster after he drank it and that his improved sales would more than make up for the $15 difference. She just sighed and walked away. I'm not sure why she always let him get away with stuff like that. She probably wanted to sleep with him. Maybe she had. I started visiting the amphitheater about once a week after that. There was something almost magnetic about it. When you think you know a place so well that you can walk with your eyes closed and then come to discover that there is an entire in-ground theater slash dolphin pit hidden right in the middle of it all, once I even worked up the courage to climb back down into the pit with the idea that maybe I would meditate while I was down there, but as soon as I hit the bottom, every nerve in my body told me to climb back up, and so I did. I searched the library for records about the park, newspaper clippings, town histories, but just as Rose had said, there was no mention anywhere of any dolphin show. The next time I was working a shift on the island, I looked up Ron Fenthauser, the man who had been subscribed to all those magazines. Eventually, I found an email address. I wrote to him and told him who I was and that I was interested in learning about what the park was like back in the day, if he'd want to meet up sometime. He wrote back several days later. Apparently, he had fond memories of his time at the park and said he'd be in town visiting his parents in a few weeks if I wanted to meet up then. It wasn't hard to sneak him into the park after closing, as we were meeting on a day when I was scheduled to be on the island. He looked to be in his 50s or 60s. He brought sandwiches for us and I made us coffee. We talked a bit about ourselves, but mostly about the park, how things were in the 90s when he worked here, and what things were like now. He spent a lot of time looking out the window at the park, looping peaks of roller coasters mingling against the horizon like effortless but elegant handwriting. It didn't take us long to arrive on the topic of the overgrown pit theater hidden away backstage in the middle of the park, the empty tank, and the old dolphin show. He was unsurprised to learn that the, quote, cover-up effort, as he called it, had continued on into the present, and he told me about the NDA that he'd had to sign when he was still employed by the park. You ask anyone old enough to remember and they'll be able to tell you about it. I imagine most people just don't want to think about it on a regular basis. It's not a pleasant thing and they've buried it for this long, at a certain point it just becomes easier to keep it buried. It happened during his third summer at the park. He was 19. They called it Bottlenose Bay, if memory serves. I remember the bee sounds. And it was actually one of the more popular attractions in the whole park. They had this whole theater and aquarium built a couple of years before I started, so the whole thing was still pretty fresh for people. Where else in the Midwest can you see live dolphins? They were doing three shows a day, which actually isn't as many as it sounds like when that many people want to get in. A late morning show, an afternoon show, and an evening one before the park closed. They were all packed, day in and day out, weekdays, weekends. There were five dolphins, which is far too many for an enclosure of that size. One is too many if you ask me, but five is just insane. 
still, they were making money for the park hand over fist. And with the amount of debt that they got into to build the theater in the first place, there was no way they were going to sell or release any of them. They bought at least three of them from some park in Russia that was being shut down. The rumors going around were that one of the dolphins had killed someone there, but I never knew whether that was true or not. Anyway, I think there were maybe three trainers. The park had gone out of their way to poach some of the best dolphin trainers in the country. So, there is more money they sunk into this thing. And those trainers trained the hell out of those dolphins, from what everyone said. It was relentless stuff. Those dolphins were expected to function as, as living machines. There were whispers that it would sometimes even cross over into abuse, that they hurt the dolphin or drive them so hard that their health suffered. I know at the very least they'd starve those animals as part of the training, not letting them eat till they did what they wanted them to. And I heard from a few people that the dolphins from Russia didn't get along with the others, that they were constantly getting into fights and always covered in scars. Eventually people like Pia started coming to the park to protest. But the local police were basically a functionary of the park, and so those little protests were always put down relatively easily. One of the trainers was named Donna. I don't remember her last name. Just that she was definitely the face of the crew. She had far and away the most stage presence, and she was a pretty 25-year-old in a wetsuit. It was a natural fit for her to lead the shows. It was the afternoon show, the weekend after 4th of July. They'd added an extra show per day on weekends during peak season by then. Midway through the show, there was a stunt where Donna would be in the water and one of the dolphins would come up from below and lift her up out of the water on its nose. He'd spin her around once, everyone would go crazy, and then he'd swim her over to the stage and let her off there. But that's not what happened this time. This time the dolphin lifted Donna up out of the water, spun her around, the crowd cheered. But when the dolphin was supposed to let her down, it launched her at least 10 feet up in the air. I was working that day, but there wasn't really anything going on at the time, so I was just sort of loitering around near the food court after eating my lunch. I remember hearing everyone gasp. A minute later, I started hearing people scream, and not the normal fun screams you hear from the rides. People started pouring out of the theater in a stampede. One kid got trampled and had to go to the ER. They were panicking. Kids were crying. I ran around the edge of the crowd and pushed my way through the front entrance into the theater. The scene that I found when I finally made it inside. It's burned into my memory until I die. Most of the people had evacuated at that point, and the water floating in the tank was red, and there was a bunch of goopy stuff floating in it that I didn't recognize at first. One of the trainers was curled up in the far back corner of the stage, screaming and sobbing. And then, Donna broke the surface of the water. Or rather, what was left of her. She was missing a leg, and her head was a bald, pulpy mess. I realized later that it wasn't her bald head that I was seeing, but her skull. The dolphin had grabbed her by her hair and eventually tore her scalp from her head. I watched her body bobbing up and down in the viscera for a few more seconds, and then another dolphin crested the surface and swam alongside the stage. It was dragging the other trainer by the arm. A third dolphin came up and they fought over the corpse. It was another five minutes before the police showed up, though when they did, they were just as clueless as I was. From the eyewitness accounts I heard over the next few days, Donna had landed on the edge of the platform after the dolphin launched her and, in all likelihood, broke the arm or shoulder that she'd landed on. She lay on the stage for a moment, writhing around in pain, and then a second dolphin slid up onto the stage, something that they often had to do for their tricks. The dolphin grabbed her by the ankle and dragged her off the stage, her scream cut off as she hit the water. 
The dolphin dragged her to the bottom of the tank, but before she could drown, he let her go. She somehow managed to pull herself back to the surface, only to be grabbed and whipped around once more before she could reach the stage. The dolphins repeated this a few times, keeping her alive, letting her get a breath of air before coming back to toy with her. The second trainer jumped in to try and save her, but the dolphins ganged up on him and battered him until he was too beat up to fight back, ramming him and several times driving him into the wall, and then they dragged him to the bottom of the tank and drowned him. They knew exactly what they were doing. Some people from the park afterward tried to say it was a horrible accident, or a mistake on Donna's part, which I always found extra galling. Bullshit. It was 100% intentional. But can you blame them? These animals are almost as smart as we are, and they take them from their parents when they're maybe one or two years old, and used to having the entire ocean to themselves to roam, and they stick them to live in these tiny swimming pools for the rest of their lives, barely able to move. All day, every day, their entire lives, all they can do is swim in small circles or just float there, listening to the sound of a filter motor, being laughed at like circus animals. I certainly don't blame them for what they did. Don't get me wrong, it was a horrible thing that happened, but it wasn't the dolphins' fault. It was the people who brought them here and put them in those pools. Hell, even afterward they wouldn't take responsibility. After the media cycle ended, they just pretended like it never happened. They didn't even fill in the pool like OSHA demanded because they didn't want to spend the money to do it, so they just paid off a couple of the right people. And of course the town had their back, because by now a quarter of the population worked for or did business with the park, and they couldn't afford to lose it. So it's easier for everyone to just keep the turnstiles turning, you know? Keep it all flowing. They even attacked Donna's family when they talked to a writer who was writing a book about dolphins in captivity, made their lives living hell, till they had to tell the author that he couldn't use their interviews. When he finished his story, Ron turned back to the window and looked out at the parking lot in silence for a long time, occasionally taking a sip of his coffee. A vast black sea of evenly grid-marked asphalt, broken up by small islands of cold mercury vapor light. We said our goodbyes not long after that, and I thanked him for visiting me. He thanked me for the coffee. There were still a few hours left on my shift then, and despite the coffee, I accidentally dozed off. Almost immediately I knew that I was dreaming, and was overcome with dread at what might happen if I was found passed out in the watchtower, or if someone radioed in. Nobody ever did, but what if there was a fire or something catastrophic? I could hear a deep swelling din outside, and looking out the window I saw nothing but grey water, churning away in a series of foamy interludes for miles in every direction, unbroken all the way to the horizon. As I approached the window, the din became a roar, punctuated by individual waves bursting and breaking against the brick tower of the lighthouse and cascading down over the deck in a shower that glistened like broken glass in the cloud-muted sunlight. The loneliest place in North America. It was raining outside, the wind rising and falling in gales, relenting for a few moments to gather itself before returning refreshed, screaming like a wronged banshee, each time somehow more violent than the last. But from inside, it all seemed like a show put on for me, to enhance the warmth and contentedness that I might feel in an interior that even on a sunny day would have felt dingy and oppressive. I climbed up the wrought iron ladder and saw the great lamp, and then took the stairs down to a lower level, even darker and damper than the floor I'd just left. No windows. 
Every footstep echoed endlessly around the old brickwork, though even in the gloom I could see that the room wasn't much bigger than the room upstairs that I had just come from. I explored until I could confirm that I was alone, even down into the basement, below sea level, the sounds of the lake muffled to a low din, rhythmically rising and falling in pitch. I found nothing besides a couple of mostly empty wooden shelves. When I returned to my starting point, it was beginning to grow dark. The sky was far too cloudy to see the sun, but it must have been setting. A lantern sat burning at a nearby table, and I couldn't recall if it had always been there. The shadows it cast were growing steadily outward now, creeping across the floor and up the walls until they fell upon the rusted-out iron bed frame in the corner. No mattress. Night came like a mist bus stop that creeps up while you're daydreaming, and the darkness of the water beyond my little outpost was as complete and total as anything I'd ever seen. As I stood in the window staring out into it, I could see in my mind what my face must have looked like from the other side of that murky glass, framed by the small irregular cutout in the side of this grim tower, the only light for hundreds of miles in any direction. I felt that there was something out there in the darkness looking at me, something that threatened to burst forward and swallow me into itself if I let my guard down. On the horizon and sweeping across the sky overhead, stars were beginning to appear. And yet, in their arrangement, they were somehow wrong. I searched in vain for a recognizable constellation. It seemed as if they were moving imperceptibly around the edge of my vision, though when I focused on any of them, I became less sure of this. The water below the sky was blacker still, the light of the half-moon refracting and splitting on the surface, dancing in the swirling darkness, a mesmerizing display. The iciness burrowed its way down through my shoulders. How long until this lighthouse was swallowed whole into the deep, and myself with it? The light of the lantern flickered against the wall. A series of thunderous knocks on the door downstairs broke the trance, startling me even over the roar of the lake. My body started, hot blood racing to my limbs and driving out the chill. After a brief interlude, the knocking started again. I moved silently to the top of the stairs and looked down into the shadowy bowels of the structure. The heavy iron door shook on its hinges with each new series of knocks. I woke suddenly, nearly falling out of my chair. Brian was coming in to relieve me. Sorry, I said, blinking. Were, were you knocking? No, he said, and put his lunch bag down on top of the mini fridge next to the desk. I found myself even more drawn to the theater after that, and soon began making regular trips to the bottom of the tank. It was still a nerve-wracking experience going down the rope ladder. I envisioned myself falling. It seemed almost unreal to imagine. Maybe it stems from this unspoken but felt notion that people who die are somehow inferior, and those who die surprised and unprepared doubly so. I think we always picture ourselves dying, if not with dignity, at least with the knowledge that we are dying. A few seconds to reflect back on life, contemplate the situation, be scared, and then, hopefully, say something profound or at least come to some sort of peace. But to be cut off immediately by an oncoming bus, to spend your whole life being prepared for things, living as a respected citizen, and then at the end only able to let out a clipped, oh my god, after your foot slips on a wet rock and you tumble over a cliff, seems somehow more undignified. 
I imagine myself saying, oh, dear God, as well, and it seems somehow worse. It seems to imply that my mind, in that brief midair moment, has comprehended in a flash of neurons the full terror of what is happening to it. It comprehends that this really is the end of myself as an entity, that this time there is no out, no close call, no scary story to look back on later. And the horror of that outweighs the pure shock of something like, oh my God, and moves into the acute existential dread of glimpsing into oblivion, fully conscious. Oh my God is knocking over a vase. Oh dear God is regret, is certainty. Oh dear God is going from wondering what you're going to have for lunch one moment to glimpsing some unimaginable terror in infinity the next. Either way, I think maybe just having the lights go out, living normally one second and then totally dark the next, might be best. Who cares about dignity if you won't be around anymore anyway? There was a part of me that wanted to see how long I could stay down at the bottom of the tank. There was a certain thrill that ran through my body each time the sounds and smells of the world above ground began to disappear. My own thoughts seemed louder at the bottom, more clear, and as I grew used to it, I began to think of it as a good place to think. Sometimes I would try to meditate, other times I would just walk around and bask in the solitude of the place. I always felt more collected, even calm, by the time I left. On Wednesdays I usually worked an earlier shift, while the park was still open, staying on the clock just long enough to make sure that everyone had cleared the premises in a timely manner. But last week a few people were on vacation and shifts got jumbled around and ended up doing my operating hours shift on a Friday. After I clocked out, I made sure nobody else was around and slipped backstage and headed for the theater. I decided to try meditating. I thought about the dolphin trainer. What must it have been like for her, dragged deeper and deeper into the water? At some point, she must have realized that she was going to die. What were those moments like, between the time that she realized she was going to die and her actually dying? Drowning, I decided, had to be one of the worst ways to die. Having your arm ripped free from your body by an animal that you trusted could only exacerbate the badness of the situation. People don't accidentally become dolphin trainers on a whim. I imagined that the trainer must have had an infatuation with the animals since she was a child. Did she feel betrayed in her last moments? Did she accept it, knowing that this was always a possibility in working with wild animals? I thought about these things and more, but it had been a long day. A long week, really. I hadn't had a day off since the previous Friday. And before long, I fell into a deep sleep. The strange, sort of discomforting sleep that comes when your body is left at an odd contorted angle, like when you fall asleep on a couch with your head angled up against an armrest where the cushioning has worn thin and you can feel the wooden skeleton on your neck, but you're so tired that you fall asleep anyways. I dreamt of the dolphin show in vivid detail, as if I'd been there myself. I saw the dolphin trainer whipped around underwater, her body eventually going limp. I heard people screaming, children crying. I decided to try and save the second trainer, and I rushed toward the tank. Without even thinking about it, I climbed over the wall and toppled headfirst into the water. I tried to swim, but found, to my terror, that I could not. It was as if all my limbs were encased in cement. I couldn't lift them, and soon found myself sinking. I struggled and fought against gravity, but before long found myself seated on the floor of the pool. The weight of the water above me compressed everything. My chest felt tight, my lungs began to burn for air. The sound of a dolphin fluke slapping against the water far above me resonated through the pool with a ghostly remove, like it was coming from another world. I was fading from reality. I could hear the vastness of the tank in every slow-motion churn of the water. This would be my tomb. Just as my vision began to go dark, 
I woke up. Disoriented and on edge, I stood up and made to leave. But before I arrived at the ladder, I froze. There were voices, thin whispers floating down out of the night air and into the depths of the pool. People in the theater, perhaps a dozen or more, murmuring indistinct conversations like an audience waiting for a show. And then, a moment later, the voices fell away one by one, and, as far as I can make out, the show began. Guttural screaming and a frenzied stamping of feet from the bleachers. Then the theater fell silent once more. I noticed now the firelight cast on the upper reaches of the tank wall, as if from torches on the stage. Welcome back, everyone, said a deep voice from the stage side of the tank. What followed? were undoubtedly the most horrific 30 minutes of my life, despite the fact that I could see very little of the show from where I sat, paralyzed with fear at the bottom of the tank, hidden behind a pile of debris. A few times I saw a number of volunteers, as they were called, cross from the bleachers to the stage, all wearing crude animal masks. Indescribable horror, larger-than-life debauchery and cruelty played out in shadows on the wall above my head like some kind of primitive snuff film. Every perversion I could imagine, and some I couldn't, depravity seemingly for depravity's sake, like they all just wanted to see if they could. The final act was greeted with a loud ruckus from the crowd as a girl was dragged screaming out of the bleachers and hoisted up onto the stage where a caged black bear awaited her. It was announced that the bear hadn't been fed in over a week, and then the shrieking girl was shoved into the cage. The cheering of the crowd soon grew to match the noises coming from the cage. If it hadn't, I would have had to cover my ears. The show ended shortly after that, and the crowd scattered in all directions. Some of them lingered around for a while, chatting. Approaching the ledge, a man in a fox mask bent down and remarked that somebody had forgotten to pull up the ladder called out to no one in particular, asking if it was meant to be left out. What would I do if he pulled it up? I slid closer to the branches in the old trash that I was laying behind. Nobody answered the man in the fox mask, and eventually he left. A few minutes later, after most of the voices had faded away, a woman in a deer mask approached the edge of the stage. I recognized Rose almost immediately, despite the mask. Her hair, her build. She stared down into the tank for a long time. I held my breath and sank down as flat to the ground as I could manage. The shadows grew deeper the farther into the tank you went, and I wondered if there was any way she could possibly see me from where she stood, some weird trick of the light or odd angle. I decided that she couldn't, but then, why was she still standing there? Several minutes passed. All of the other voices were gone, all of the sounds and commotion silent, save for the wind whipping through the concrete and dead trees. Rose didn't say anything, didn't move, just stared down into the vastness at the bottom of the tank, surveying the wasteland. Then, cutting through the night, came the sound of whistling. Not long after that, Rose left the theater. Her whistling took a long time to trail off, but eventually I was alone. I waited a long time before climbing the ladder out, stopping every few rungs to listen and make sure that there would be nobody waiting for me at the top. I left the park quickly after that. The dead and mute rides seemed all to glare at me. Shadowy figures in the corners of my vision stalked me down the haunted midway, always just out of sight. Branches frozen in the moonlight wavered menacingly in the breeze, casting long and cragged shadows over shuttered funnel cake shops.
The carousel, joyful and bright in the daytime, now loomed menacingly overhead as I passed, hiding something terrible in its silent depths. The sense that I was being watched, that there was some sort of nebulous doom hanging over me, did not leave me as I left the park. I kept to well-lit streets whenever possible, but even the main roads were empty at this hour and subsumed with a kind of ghostly stillness. A few times I passed someone across the street going the other way, head hung and hands in pockets, shadowy figures wandering like lost souls loitering through limbo. City Tokyo, neon open sign buzzing in the window, stood as a beacon in the darkness. I wasn't hungry, but I needed to see a familiar face and let my nerves relax before the back half of my walk. Upon entering, I realized that the person sitting at the counter wasn't Mr. Chen. It was Rose. Her back was turned toward me, an infomercial playing on the TV. I'd been standing in the doorway for probably 30 seconds when Mr. Chen came out of the kitchen. He greeted me and asked if I wanted anything to eat. Rose looked back over her shoulder and smiled when she saw me. I had no choice now but to sit down next to her. I told Mr. Chen that I just wanted a Coke. Rose had a cleared plate in front of her, with only a few stray grains of rice left clinging to her fork. The fan opposite the TV spun noisily in its cage. Were you working today? asked Rose. Yeah, only because the schedules got shifted. Oh, I forgot about that. I waited for her to ask why I was only now leaving the park, but she didn't. Mr. Chen placed a glass of Coke on the counter in front of me. I tried to hand him three dollars, but he waved me off. Rose took the money instead. You can pay my tip, she said, her eyes shimmering even in the dull fluorescent lighting, and placed the bills half under her plate. I told her it was funny seeing her here, but she didn't leave. She waited for me to finish my drink instead. Mr. Chen went to a table behind us and began to play solitaire. Eventually, I finished my drink and stood up. Good seeing you, said Mr. Chen. Always, I said. He looked at Rose and gave me a knowing smile. The little bell atop the door jingled as we left. The air was cooler than I remembered and drove the late night lethargy from my body. The fog cleared from my brain and I noticed Rose looking at me. Walk me home, she asked. I nodded, feeling a knot growing in my throat. We began to walk side by side. As we moved into a nearby neighborhood, the street turned from pavement to brick, and the trees grew taller, older, leaning over the street. It felt like we were walking into a tunnel. A mist had begun to crawl in off the lake while we'd been in the restaurant, and was now crowding up around the streetlights which marked each intersection. I've always thought this street looked like it could be someplace in England, said Rose. Looks like somewhere Jack the Ripper would have prowled, I said. Rose looked at me. Well... I never thought about it like that, she said, but you're kind of right. The driveways here were long. The large houses sat back off the street, sleeping. Our cobblestone footsteps echoed across the hollow walls and garage doors. If I screamed, it seemed that everyone for miles would hear me. But would anyone do anything about it? Did I tell you that Garrett and I broke up? asked Rose. I tried my best to hide my surprise and giddy excitement. No, are you serious? She nodded. Last week. God, I'm so sorry. She shrugged. It is what it is. How are you doing? I asked. You know, I've been better. Life goes on, all that. Do you want to talk about what happened? I mean, I don't want to pry. You'd have to ask him, she said. God, what an asshole, I said. She laughed. What? I, nothing. 
I figured you'd say something like that. Well, I mean, if it's true. You want me to hurt him for you? I asked. She laughed even harder at this. You? Ooh, ouch, I said. Sorry, I'm just giving you a hard time. It's fine, you don't, you don't have to hurt him. Well, let me know, you know, if you ever want me to. Have you ever done that before? She asked. Hurt someone? We entered an especially dark stretch of the street and made a right turn toward her neighborhood. I don't know. I don't think so, I said. I mean, maybe. Hasn't everyone at some point, even by accident? Probably. Have you? I asked. She was quiet for a long time. No, of course not. Her voice was even quieter now. I do think about it sometimes, though. What do you mean? Don't you ever think what it would be like to do something like that? To stab someone, for instance? What it would be like to be holding that knife in your own hands? I don't know, I said. I mean, we all take life so seriously, but it can be gone just like that, you know? I do. I just sometimes imagine what it's like for the people who do kill people. Why do they do it? What must that feel like? To see that moment when the life leaves someone else's eyes. Or worse, those last few terrified moments right before, when they realize what's coming. When they realize there's no more escaping it. I cleared my throat, unsure of what to say. I tried to put some more space between us without her noticing. Do you want to hold my hand? She asked. It's so cold out here. I wiped my palm on my pant leg and held it out for her to take. Your hands are so warm, she said. The houses on our left fell away, replaced by dense forest. Clouds moved in to cover the face of the moon. Cut through the ravine, she asked. Oh, sure enough, a little dirt footpath merged with the sidewalk just ahead of where we'd stopped. It's pretty dark, no? She squeezed my hand. You're cute. I do it all the time, it's fine. It's another 15 minutes if we go around. And so she led the way. The forest enveloped us almost immediately, the light and sound of human civilization receding to our rear. The sporadic chittering of crickets followed our route, detritus of years past padding every step. The trail began to narrow as we neared the drop-off, until finally it turned into a series of dirt cut-out steps heading straight down. We had to go single file here, and she stepped aside to let me go first. She grabbed and held out in the hood of my sweatshirt as we descended. It was even quieter down here we said nothing to each other, but I could hear her breathing above me, just a foot or two back. I didn't know how deep the ravine ran. If she pushed me, would I die? But soon the ground began to level out. At the bottom I paused, and she paused behind me. It felt as if the forest was holding its breath. I waited for Rose to ask me why I stopped, but she remained silent. Thirty seconds, a whole minute, waiting. Was it my heart beating or hers? She began to whistle just behind my head, the same tune as when she'd stood on the edge of the tank earlier. Years ago, when I was still in school, I had an English teacher who'd attended Florida State at the same time Ted Bundy was stalking the campus. One day in class, he told us all a story that his wife had relayed to him about coming back to her sorority house late one night during a holiday break. Most of the students had headed for home by then, and there were only a few girls left in the house. 
Almost as soon as she'd stepped into the darkened foyer and heard the door close behind her to hear my teacher tell it, she had sensed that something was deeply, deeply wrong, and she'd felt it in the marrow of her bones on an animal level. Standing absolutely still there, trying to control her breathing, the hairs on her arms were picking up electrical signals in the atmosphere, too raw for any of her other senses to discern. It was too powerful a feeling to ignore. Like an ancient African tribesman in the bush, feeling the eyes of a lion on his back from the tall grasses. The faint odor of iron in the atmosphere of the house, he speculated. Something too primal for our clumsy modern senses to articulate. Either way, she turned and left after a few seconds and went to stay with my teacher. She learned the next day, to her horror, that her three sorority sisters who'd been in the house that night were murdered in their bedrooms. She learned years later that it was Ted Bundy who had murdered them. I felt that same primal fear standing at the bottom of the ravine. Even in the darkness, my eyes could discern detailed patterns in the bark of nearby trees. When finally Rose spoke, it was just above a whisper. It sounded like she was right next to my ear. I'm sorry about your brother. I could feel the dampness of her breath on my neck. I waited for whatever would happen next. I can't even imagine what you're going through. It's okay, I mumbled. It was silent again after that. For several long seconds, I didn't even hear her breathing. I'm here for you if you ever want to talk, she said. She placed her hand on the back of my neck. It was ice cold. I swallowed hard, nodded. Thanks. I forced my legs, numbed to dead weight with fear, to move, and walked up the other side of the ravine. A few minutes later, we were out of the woods, and a few minutes after that, we were standing in front of Rose's house. Do you want to come inside? She asked. I'd never been in her room before. The thought of it made my chest clench up. The inside of her house was dark. What would happen to me in that quiet interior? I told her that I had to get home, explain something about a long day, and after studying me for a few moments, she nodded and said goodnight. I walked around the ravine on my way back. As I lay down in bed, I looked out my window and saw that the sky was starting to glow purple around the horizon, just barely. The brighter the sky grew, the harder time I had falling asleep. I had a Starbucks shift starting in four hours, but I couldn't bring myself to close the blinds.